Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm producer Taylor Seeley, stepping in for our host, Kayla White. Today, we're talking about the politician Barry Goldwater and his legacy in Arizona and beyond. Let's grow up, conservatives. Let's, if we want to take this party back, and I think we can someday, let's get to work. What you know about Barry Goldwater might depend on which generation you're a part of, or how much of a history buff you are. He was a decisive figure in American politics who helped shape the modern Republican Party. Goldwater simply had something about him. There was a charisma that none of these others had. He could could give one hell of a good speech. But he died in 1998. So if you're a younger millennial or a Gen Z listener, you may not be as familiar with him. Don't worry, I'll fill you in. Barry Goldwater was a businessman, a city councilman, a senator, and a presidential candidate. He is known by many as the face of modern conservatism. He believed the government should have a very limited role in people's lives. He advocated for fiscal prudence and fiercely defended individual freedom. But he was also an avid adventurer and, most would tell you, a pretty decent photographer. There's a lot to Barry Goldwater that could make up an entire audio series of its own. But for today, I'll share a little bit about his upbringing and a few key moments that contributed to his legacy in American politics. Goldwater was born on January 2nd, 1909 in Phoenix, Arizona. Arizona at that point was three years away from becoming a state. His father, Baron Goldwater, was a businessman who owned a popular department store called Goldwater's. His mother, Josephine, was an adventurous woman who loved the outdoors. She instilled that spirit in Goldwater and his two siblings, Robert and Carolyn. Thanks to Josephine, Goldwater learned about Arizona nature and photography, which would become a lifelong passion of his. His political ideology would form after 1929. What happens is that Goldwater came of age politically in the Great Depression. Uh, He had to take over the family department store, uh, I think it was 1929, which is the year the stock market crashed, and he had to take it over because his father had died. That's Michael Rubinoff, a historian and professor at Arizona State University. Four years into Goldwater running the family business, Franklin Delano Roosevelt would become president. To help the country through the Great Depression, he proposed the New Deal. It is for the new generation to participate in the decision and to give strength and spirit and continuity to our government and to our national life. And so he got to watch the New Deal years and he never was very supportive of it. And though the Goldwaters had a tradition of being Democrats, they were Democrats who were very conservative. 
To Goldwater, the New Deal programs exemplified federal government intervening in free enterprise. He pointed to things like the National Industrial Recovery Act, which regulated industry and forced wage and price control. It was later deemed unconstitutional. And so Goldwater's philosophy was simply just appalled by what he saw as the New Deal's overreach and constantly grabbing, basically, and take, telling business what to do, telling labor what they can and cannot do, and telling individuals what they can and cannot do. And he just found this uh, red tape, uh, bureaucrat uh, you know, overreach, the growth of government. And uh, so his philosophy was formed, uh, basically, as a young man. He was now in his uh, 30s, and he simply saw New Deal programs as being oh, not all that helpful in the long run and taking away individual freedom. Again, it's that word freedom. As a Republican businessman in Arizona, which at the time was a heavily Democratic state, Goldwater mostly kept his politics to himself. But he wasn't the only Republican in Phoenix. He was friends with Eugene Pulliam, the newspaper publisher of the Arizona Republic and Phoenix Gazette. Pulliam was a powerhouse who had a lot of sway locally. And in the late 1940s, Pulliam and other business owners founded the Charter Government Committee to change things up on the Phoenix City Council. According to historian Peter Iverson, quote, Phoenix politics had been characterized by instability and lack of accountability, unquote. The Charter Government Committee intended to fix it by running a swath of candidates to replace the Phoenix City Council, and Barry Goldwater was tapped by the committee to run. The Arizona Republic, of which you're quite familiar, basically was a good broadcasting arm for Barry Goldwater. Uh, Eugene Pulliam was quite favorable to his politics, and so the Arizona Republic had a definite spin back then. So, you know, Goldwater had a reputation. The family stores were the department store uh, from their first store in uh, Prescott. And then they had one in downtown Phoenix, and later they moved up to Park Central. And then they also had a second store at Fashion Square in Scottsdale. And so Goldwater found himself just not drawn to the, uh, the Democratic Party in Arizona. He saw himself as a Republican. And he kind of kept quiet politically. He didn't really talk about much until we get to that run for the Phoenix City Council, which was nonpartisan, and I think that was like 1947 or so. Goldwater was elected to the Phoenix City Council in 1949. The elections were at large back then, not by district. So each voter got to vote for eight candidates. Of the approximately 22,000 voters in Phoenix, about 16,000 of them voted for Goldwater. He was the most popular council member elected, and his popularity only grew. He was known for being blunt and having a good sense of humor. Historian Peter Iverson wrote in his book about Goldwater that as a council member, he kept wind-up chatter teeth on his desk, and when he felt other members spoke too long or were droning on, he would wind up the teeth and let them chatter, making his point clear. His popularity caught the attention of others in politics, and by 1950, Republican Howard Pyle plucked Goldwater to be his campaign manager. Pyle wanted to be governor, and Goldwater ended up being a great pick. Remember how I said Goldwater was adventurous? 
Well, in addition to being a photographer and videographer, he was also a pilot. Now, why that matters to Pyle is because at the time, Arizona didn't have as many highways as it does today. So because traveling was more difficult, Goldwater started to literally fly Howard Pyle to various campaign stops in Arizona. That was a major breakthrough in campaigning. And in 1951, Pyle won. This was a big deal. Arizona at the time was led mostly by Democrats. Voter registration for the Democratic Party far outnumbered registered Republicans. And perhaps that gave Goldwater some confidence. Also, he had just won re-election for Phoenix City Council in 1951. And just like before, he had the most votes of any city council member elected. So really, it came as no surprise when he decided to run for U.S. Senate. He announced his bid in April 1952. It helped Goldwater that he had just come off Howard Pyle's gubernatorial campaign, where he had traveled all across the state meeting Arizonans. But remember how he was a photographer? Well, he also did viewings of his work. He showed a film he made of his adventures on the Colorado River at Phoenix Union High School, the Heard Museum, the Orpheum in downtown Phoenix, and other locations across Arizona. He campaigned hard, and ultimately, he won, which was a huge deal. Uh, and then in 52, Goldwater runs, and Eisenhower runs for president, and uh, he defeats the Senate uh, Majority Leader, Ernest McFarland, who, uh, that was quite a thing, because seldom do majority leaders get bumped off in this case, uh, McFarland probably took Goldwater too lightly, not realizing that he had gone around the state showing his home movie of rafting the Colorado, the Goldwater stores, and simply an Arizona name. I mean, the Goldwaters had been here since uh, the later decades of the 19th century. Ernest McFarland, Goldwater's challenger, whom he defeated, was not only the Democratic incumbent running in a Democratic state, but he was the Senate majority leader. Today, that would be like a liberal city council member in Kentucky running and defeating Mitch McConnell. Later on, Goldwater would credit some of his win to the fact that it was a presidential election year. At the top of the ticket was Dwight D. Eisenhower, a middle-of-the-road Republican with broad appeal. Goldwater, as he said, got in on Eisenhower's coattails. Uh, here in 1952, and then he got reelected in 58, and that sets him up for the Republican nomination. This is when Goldwater starts really achieving national political prominence. It's 1960. The setting is the Republican National Convention. That's the big gathering of Republicans for the purpose of deciding who their presidential candidate should be. All of us Republicans must get on with the business of victory. That is our job. Goldwater wasn't the decided nominee, but he was nominated by a few delegates. He had been a senator for about eight years at that point, and his blunt prose that won him accolades on the Phoenix City Council was also charming conservatives across the nation. In the crowd, 
you see people waving signs for him, and he's invited to speak. United States Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Thank you. While Goldwater wasn't shy about his conservative beliefs, and he spoke in a no-holds-barred manner, even against other Republicans, he was loyal to the Republican Party. And as such, he encouraged his supporters to throw their support behind Richard Nixon. Delegates to the convention and fellow Republicans, I respectfully ask the chairman to withdraw my name from nomination. Please. This country is too important for anyone's feelings. This country and its majesty is too great for any man, be he conservative or liberal, to stay home and not work just because he doesn't agree. He got up and he said the famous words, Let's grow up, conservatives. Let's, if we want to take this party back, and I think we can someday, let's get to work. And, uh, and he did stump for Nixon. I think he, really, he wanted Nixon to beat John Kennedy. Ultimately, JFK would beat Nixon. But that's not the thing to focus on. Goldwater's popularity at this convention signaled that a change was coming. The thing you have to understand about this moment is there was a major chasm in the Republican Party. Today, we might think about the Republican Party and conservatism as synonymous, and one might think of Democrats and liberalism as one and the same. Back then, though, that wasn't the case. In fact, you had a large number of conservative Democrats and a large number of liberal Republicans. But the Republican Party was divided regionally. Historically, the Republican Party was controlled by businessmen and manufacturing industrialists in the Northeast, largely represented by figures like Nelson Rockefeller. And then you had the Southern and Western Republicans who more represented farming interests. The more prominent Northeastern Republicans were the more liberal group of Republicans. Here's Brooke Simpson, a historian and professor at Arizona State University, with more details of the party ideologies at the time. The branch of the Republican Party that became identified as a moderate or even liberal branch of the party, um, really in some fundamental way, didn't, didn't uh, differ that much from the Democrats. Uh, the Republicans believed in a strong national defense. Uh, they believed in a government assistance to economic development, but not uh, with high tax rates or uh, overt regulation. But those Republicans did see government as uh, serving certain important functions. When the parties disagreed, it was typically on specific fiscal or foreign policy ideas. But both agreed the government should definitely play a role perhaps even a large role, in improving people's lives. Barry Goldwater, however, thought differently. He came in as a conservative Republican and argued for limited government power and advocated more for states' rights. And for conservatives in the South and the West, who previously were not popular, this was appealing. 
Goldwater energized them and even galvanized support among young college Republicans. So the showing at the 1960 convention, even though he didn't win, was really evidence of the change in the party. It foreshadowed where the Republican Party was headed. And by 1964, it became clear. April 14th, Goldwater wins Illinois primary. May 5th, Goldwater wins Indiana primary. May 12th, Goldwater wins Nebraska primary. June 2nd, Goldwater wins the all-important California primary. In 1964, Goldwater clinched the Republican nomination for president. And I'm proud to nominate my colleague from Arizona to be the Republican nominee for president of the United States. In the general election, he faced off against President Lyndon Bain Johnson. LBJ had assumed the office of the presidency after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. The race was vitriolic. Goldwater's challenge to the notion that government should in part function to improve people's lives was seen as pretty radical at the time. And the Democrats pounced on that messaging to portray him as an extremist. It didn't help Goldwater that at the 64 convention, when he accepted his party's nomination, he made comments in his speech that made it appear as though he endorsed extremism. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. He also said, And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. When Republicans banded around Goldwater with the slogan, in your heart, you know he's right, Democrats shot back with, but in your guts, you know he's nuts. They also came up with the infamous Daisy ad. One, two, That's the one where the little girl's plucking petals off a flower. Then, a narrator begins a countdown to nuclear explosion. These are the stakes. This ad was one of many ways in which Goldwater's life shaped American politics. Sure, political campaigning had always been nasty, but... This was slightly different. The Daisy commercial chose the power of television to paint candidates in negative term using vivid visuals and basically the power of suggestion. The ad sought to reinforce the idea floating around that Goldwater was too extreme and he simply couldn't be trusted with the nuclear codes. While it was so provocative that it only aired once, it was effective. Goldwater and his supporters were seen as fanatics. And so it was seen as a movement of fanatics led by an out-of-touch visionary who uh, might lead the country into uh, disaster. Simply put, most of the country wasn't seeing eye-to-eye with conservatives. 
Simpson said most people at the time did have faith in government. They did want some level of intervention. And on election day, LBJ handily defeated Senator Goldwater with 61.1% of the popular vote and 486 electoral votes. Goldwater earned only 52 electoral votes. You, Lyndon Baines Johnson, do solemnly swear. I, Lyndon Baines Johnson, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of the Presidency of the United States. The office of the Presidency of the United States. And will to the After the election loss, Goldwater eventually returned to the U.S. Senate, where he remained until 1987. In total, he served five terms in the U.S. Senate. And that was the highest political office he was ever elected to. He did not run for president again, and he was never a vice presidential candidate. So why is he such an icon in American politics? Why is he one of the more memorable failed presidential candidates? Barry Goldwater's lasting legacy nationally is that he helped to change the conversation about the role of government in solving problems and whether in fact it might have caused more problems than it solved. And so more and more we now debate about the role of government in fundamental ways that I don't think we argued about prior to Goldwater's uh, emergence. Goldwater simply had something about him. There was a charisma that none of these others had. Uh, he could he could give one hella of a good speech. And he could get his followers uh, as they grew and grew, particularly nationally outside of Arizona. He was very passionate. He was also a party builder. Goldwater was just remarkably affable. And while the country wasn't ready for his conservatism in 1964, it would get there. Arizona would eventually swing red thanks to Barry Goldwater. The fact that for the first time in 1968, Republicans had an American majority in Maricopa County in voter registration. And uh, that was an historical moment because the Republicans had always been playing catch up in Arizona. Of course, I know that's a different conversation right now and in the last few years. But if you want to hear about how we became a battleground state in recent history, I would suggest you listen to our political podcast, The Gaggle, instead. Anyway, Simpson said eventually events like the Vietnam War and Watergate began to sow distrust in government among the public. As people grew more skeptical of politicians and Washington, they were more open to libertarian ways of thinking like Goldwater's. And that paved the way for candidates like Ronald Reagan and others. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. The other legacy Goldwater left was the association he built between the Republican Party and individual freedom, or liberty. He spoke for always using the word freedom, and he felt that the Republican Party uh, personified freedom going back to its uh, anti-slavery days uh, with Abraham Lincoln, and that the party uh, believed in individual freedom, less government, less red tape, uh, less regulation, and if you simply unshackle American enterprise, you would grow your economy and create greater prosperity. And I happen to feel that people not only can handle most of their own private affairs, 
I think they should. I don't think that any government ever created is so all-wise that it can run your life or your family better than you can. His calls for increased individual freedom, free enterprise, and fiscal prudence lingered in the Republican Party long after him. There's another responsibility that government owes to every wage earner, and particularly to the retired people, to Social Security recipients, or all older people who have to live with a fixed income. And that responsibility is simply to keep our dollar sound, make it worth the same tomorrow as it is today. Sometimes, the level to which Goldwater would lean into his principles, however, was off-putting for voters. Specifically, because he rejected government intervention in one's personal or economic affairs, he did not support the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which ended segregation in public places and banned discrimination on the basis of race, religion, sex, or national origin. Goldwater felt that if you own your own store, you own your own restaurant and so forth, um, you ought to be able to decide who you wish to serve. He did not think that government had any right to tell somebody in their own business what they should do and not do. Uh, He felt this was unconstitutional. He felt that if government can tell you now who you can and and cannot serve, it's not going to be too far of a stretch that in the future government's going to tell you what to think and what not to think. Southern segregationists loved this stance, and many of them, who were Democrats, softened to Goldwater and began to support him. Here's Brooks Simpson again. But that opposition gained him support from those people who opposed civil rights legislation because they wanted to preserve white supremacy. Um, Goldwater was not happy with the support of these people because that was not uh, his position. Um, at at all, Um, but people sort of hijacked the Goldwater campaign, in a sense, in that year to continue to portray the Republican Party as increasingly conservative on issues of race. For the Republicans who supported the 1964 Act, and there were many, this was a huge step backwards. Rubinoff said Goldwater was not a segregationist and had, in fact, desegregated all of his department stores and supported civil rights groups locally in Arizona. He had supported civil rights acts. He had supported the Civil Rights Act in 1957, uh, which opened up an investigation arm in the Justice Department. He had desegregated the Goldwater stores in the early 50s. He had desegregated the Arizona uh, Air National Guard, of which he was a member. He had supported the Urban League in Phoenix. Um, And so Goldwater actually had a record uh, long before 64, of having been very much in favor of equality. Regardless, Goldwater's stance on the act earned the repudiation of civil rights leaders and marked a huge shift for black voters nationally. African Americans were now able to vote uh, because of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, et cetera, expressed themselves in the electorate, become much more of a mobilizing uh, part of uh, the Democratic coalition. It wasn't an overnight process. The Democratic Party had decades earlier been amassing more support from black constituents thanks to things like FDR's New Deal programs and other stances that aligned with increased civil rights. But Goldwater's Civil Rights Act stance 
was a defining moment. In an episode of the NPR podcast Code Switch, Professor Vincent Hutchings from the University of Michigan said that in 1960, four years before the act, about 66% of Black voters were Democrats. By 2020, according to Pew Research Center, that shot up to 83%. Even though Goldwater lost badly to LBJ in 1964, the passionate support he did receive from his voters, particularly those in the South, didn't go unnoticed by future GOP candidates. The, quote, Southern strategy exposed by Goldwater was later adopted into other presidential campaigns and realized by candidates like Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. I asked Rubinoff, if we consider Goldwater the face of modern conservatism, does that mean he would advocate for all of what conservatives advocate for today? How similar or different would he be to other contemporary conservative members? Probably, I think it would be safe to say that Goldwater would see certain things in the Republican Party today that he'd approve and certain things that he wouldn't approve. Certainly, he was not a social issue conservative. That was not a part of his messaging, and it was not a part of the early conservative movement. It was post-Goldwater. Simpson said Goldwater espoused a very specific libertarian style of conservatism. I also think that what Barry Goldwater did was pioneer a distinctive brand of conservatism, um, not always understood by people who um, know about him, and that it was a conservatism that leaned towards a libertarian point of view when it came to issues of personal behavior. For example, Goldwater was a pro-choice conservative. In fact, his wife was involved in opening a Planned Parenthood in Phoenix. So Goldwater really didn't like the social issues coming in. He felt that that was personal choices and that government should not be interfering in any way, one way or the other. Later in his life, he was a vocal supporter of allowing gay people to serve in the military, and he had strong convictions in the separation of church and state. He once said that he did not believe that, uh, you know, <clears throat> these ministers and preachers who were coming onto the scene should be the ones who are dictating uh, national policy. He was just appalled by it. Um, you know, he had his own deeply held religious convictions, but he kept them to himself. Uh, he didn't believe that you want to put that into the public arena. In reading up on Barry Goldwater for this episode, I found a five-point strategy that he exhorted to fellow Republicans at a fundraising event while he was senator. I think it perfectly exemplifies the ways in which his mold of conservatism has maintained today, because much of the language is echoed today. He suggested, one, stop being ashamed of being an American and a Republican. Two, put human freedom as the first and primary demand of the party. Three, stop apologizing for the capitalistic society that afforded Americans the highest standard of living with the greatest amount of personal freedoms. Four, Get rid of compromising Republican leaders. Five, stop planning for socialism and start planning for the continuation and improvement of our free enterprise system. There is no doubt I have left out so much more about Goldwater, his life, his legacy, and the way his campaign changed American politics. But like I said at the top, 
that could be an entire audio series of its own. So if you have more specific questions, feel free to send them. But I would also highly recommend the book Barry Goldwater, Native Arizonan by Peter Iverson. It's the perfect choice for people wanting to better understand how he shaped Arizona and how Arizona shaped him. Well, that's all for our recap of Senator Barry Goldwater's legacy and how he shaped modern American politics. I loved working on this episode, and I found it particularly interesting to think about as we finish out this momentous 2020 election year. Listeners, if you love politics, I would encourage you to hop over to our sister show, The Gaggle. We have some of the best political reporters in the state who will provide you with in-depth analysis you can't find anywhere else every Wednesday. While I still have you, we would like to invite you to send in more questions. If you've ever wondered something about Phoenix, no matter how silly or serious it seems, we want to hear. Submit your question at valley101.azcentral.com. Audio in this episode came from C-SPAN and archive.org. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our show, please leave a written review in your podcast app. All right, we'll see you on Monday.